Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we are covering Excalibur 58 Troll Call, in which our dear friends Fum, Fop, Faye, Flop, Flem, and Fow are at it again, and so are Jubilee and Gambit, who continue to be mean to my fave. Plus, Kurt fights a troll and wins. We should all be so lucky. Excalibur number 58 was originally published in December 1992, and the creative team is Alan Davis and Scott Lobdell on writing, Joe Matter on pencils, Yosef Rubenstein and Hector Calazzo on inks, Kevin Tinsley on colors, Ken Lopez on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. We have won battles against armies, and now one man defeats all my knights. He's a mighty opponent. Welcome back to the sewer. We're still here, and so are Excalibur and the X-Men, continuing last week's continuation of X-Factor number 41 and 42. Gotta love the shared continuity universe. But who are we? Speaking for myself, I'm Dr. Anna Papard. I do stuff having to do with stuff about stuff, mostly gender and sexuality and comics and pop culture stuff. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and he's such a little guy in this issue, and I just, I feel for him. (laughs) He's He's like all gangle limbs and heart when Joe Mad draws him, and I kind of love it. Um, anyway, moving on, Mav, please reintroduce us to your accolades. We are about to spend one solid hour talking about Dragon Quest. Dragon Quest V. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is why we are here. I know because the cover of this issue promises me, beyond video, the new Dragon Quest game is here, announcements inside. I am so ready for this. This is what we're going to talk about, this upcoming game that came out in 1992. 30 years ago. <laughs> they were so proud of this. Um, hi, my name is Christopher. <laughs> my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. And uh, I'm silly. It's, you know, fi- I'm, I'm at the week between finals still. Like, I'll, I-, I might be a little depressed next week as I'm trying to rush grades in. But I finished grading for one of my for one of my universities. And then the other two projects aren't due till next week. So I've got this this little calm between the storms where I where I feel good about myself and where I'm loving life. I'm going to go see Dr. Strange tomorrow. That's where I'm at with life right now. (laughs) Now, next week, I'm going to hate life. And I want everybody to remind me how much like I enjoyed myself (laughs) this week because it's not going to be there next week. But um, but beyond that, I, you know, obviously I teach at three different universities in Western PA and I have another podcast called Fox Popcast. And but again, loving life this week, loving life. Let's talk about Dragon Quest. (laughs) (laughs) 
eager to talk about both of those things. There is a six-page insert for Dragon Quest, I can confirm, in the original copy of this comic. Really disrupts the reading experience, but does look awesome. So, <laughs> Andrew, reunite us with your adventures. Hello, I'm Dr. J. Andrew DeMann. I am a lecturer at St. John's University and project lead for the Claremont Run. Um, I'm in a weirdly different place in math because we had our first new um, lecture of the term last night, oh, the right. spring term. Uh, and it's a superhero course, and it's the greatest thing in the world because at the end of the first lecture, they always have their mouths open because, holy crap, oh, we can study superheroes at the university. Yeah. <laughs> and they all want to talk That's to so you cute. about their personal feelings on superheroes. It's really delightful. Oh. Um, but anyway, I'm, I also wanted to just say that I've gotten to dialogue with today's guest quite a bit on the Claremont Run and elsewhere. So very excited to speak in pod person to them without giving anything <laughs> away. But I do want to say that as much in, as Mav and I compete over who loves Ilyana more, I think our guest <laughs> might actually take the title from both of us. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> and no, no opportunities to talk about her today at all, sadly. We can. Well, way. I can. I, I yeah. can always find a, yeah. a time. So now you're making me want to go into the other room and get my little statuette so, so I can oh, be ready and like, I, like, talk to her. Oh, I've seen the pictures. <laughs> Mav has been 3D printing Ileana figures. What? It's, yeah. it's the reason I brought a 3D printer. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally why I have one. <laughs> this That's is true. So cool. Can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we are joined this week by a very smart kindred spirit in the world of analyzing and tweeting about X-Men. The pod is delighted to welcome Connor Mulvaney. Welcome, Connor. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. Super uh, excited to be here. We're super excited to have you. I'll tell our listeners a little bit more about you. So Connor Mulvaney is a former group therapist and current justice reform researcher who spends an awful lot of time on the internet writing about queer readings of Chris Claremont's Uncanny X-Men, the mutant metaphor and depictions of trauma in mainstream comics. Since November 2020, he's been doing this at the Twitter handle Connor Reads Claremont, writing truly amazing threads moving chronologically through the Claremont mm -hmm. run. You can find his threads linked and archived at the website readtherun.com, which also has reading lists and additional resources and all kinds of good stuff. So Connor, as Andrew mentioned, uh, most of us have interacted with you <laughs> online before, mm -hmm. but let's talk comics origin stories to kick things off as we like to do. What is yours, Connor? When did you first get hooked on comics? Yeah, so so I'm very much um, a 90s kid. And I want to clarify, like not a 90s teenager, like a 90s kid. And so... <laughs> Uh, was kind of at the appropriate age for what I feel is kind of hands down like an animation boom around superheroics. Yeah, yeah. The Batman animated series into Justice League and those shows. And I just started to develop just this fascination with these characters. There was something about there being lore, <laughs> like things I could learn about it and understand it. And then probably kind of like pre-adolescence, beginning of being a teenager. And this is kind of a weird entry point for the X-Men, but the Evolution series was out, which is an interesting adaptation <laughs> of, um, <laughs> of those characters. But there was just something really, really intoxicating about, um, especially kind of being this at the time, confused and technically closeted queer kid like the idea of I get to go somewhere and you know be special like there's somewhere to go back to at the end of the day and I adored that and so I started picking up comics I I would get kind of like a floppy here or a floppy there there wasn't 
like a local comic book shop in my town, but there was a grocery store that inconsistently had X-Men. So I would get like a <laughs> random issue of something. I distinctly remember a few years into buying floppies, I picked up a Claremont issue that was his return to uncanny. And that was fun. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I know what comic that is. Yeah. Rachel, yeah. Rachel, I think her title was the White Warrior Princess of the Hellfire <laughs> Club. And somehow I was like, I need to read more of this. <laughs> Something did it for me. And I, I ended up, it was around the time they were printing those um, like essential volumes on the newsprint that were black and white. And I would beg my parents to buy them for me. And then I just would, would go through them in a few days and would need to go back for another one. And then through reading Claremont, it was like, oh, this is that same feeling that I was getting watching this show. There, there's something happening here that's making sense to my like little queer brain. And it's kind of, it's just been love ever since. <laughs> Aww, well, let me ask you about your Connor Reed's Claremont project. What prompted you to start doing that? What made you want to do this thing and tweet about X-Men and do it in the way that you're doing it? Yeah, so... <laughs> This is this is kind of very much my uh, in the spirit of Scott Summers uh, doing things in the world. So I was in my my last year of grad school, um, and I was in a master of social work program at the time. And when you're a social work student, and when you're a social worker, we have this thing called supervision, and it's sort of this like parallel process to manage all of the things that come up when you're doing the work that we do. And so my supervisor at the time, you know, this is fall 2020, so we're still in like the heaviest parts of the pandemic and I'm doing really heavy work that is kind of kicking up a lot of stuff and the election is imminent and my uh my supervisor was like you need a hobby I want you to I want you to find something that has nothing to do with trauma or politics or social justice I I want you to find something that like you can do just for fun the Scott Summers of this is like my brain was like ah yes a task I can succeed yeah. at this <laughs> and came back with a, like a fully organized calendar to talk about the X-Men at like a rapid pace, which fully missed the point of what she was asking me to do <laughs> in many, many ways. <laughs> really missed the point. But that's kind of how it started. And it, you know, I have to give Andrew actually, you know, some credit. I, I had kind of been semi-present on X Twitter. I don't know that it, you know, it, it was there, but it only felt like people kind of talked on like Wednesdays. <laughs> It wasn't the, the community that it that it is now, right? And and I, I have to credit also, you know, I think the relaunch kind of reinvigorated this idea of fandom. And so I started to become more active. Um, and when I started tweeting about the X-Men, <laughs> at first it was jokey. And, and I feel like I can use this word, like a little shit posty. Like I was very sarcastic <laughs> and, and very dry. It was like the, you know, and it, and which made sense because that's what, Claremont would do at the end of an issue. It was just mm -hmm. furious narration, <laughs> taunting Scott Summers. So it was allowed to be a little more more jokey. And by the time I, I want to say it was probably around Dark Phoenix, which I had gotten to within like two months of of tweeting from Giant Sized, I realized that I could come to these books and these stories with my training. And as it turns out, being a social worker is is sort of a weirdly appropriate qualification to talk about the X-Men. Yeah. Uh, it kind of just works for, for that. So with Dark Phoenix, I, I started taking it seriously and it was seeing folks like Andrew. Um, I didn't know that you could talk intelligently about comics. You know, I didn't know that there was scholarship around comics. And so things like the Claremont run, some of the many 
podcasts out there got me excited to do this and to take it seriously. And and here we are. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, I want to ask you a little bit more about that affection for Scott Summers because we got him in the issue and we just started talking about him like a little bit at the end of the last episode. So I want to return to that conversation. But before we do that, let me ask you a couple of things about Excalibur. You know, obviously you haven't gotten there in your Read the Run project. I don't know whether you will continue into Excalibur or not, but do you have any sort of thoughts or feelings about this particular series? Did you read it when you were younger or have you gone back to it, you know, as part of this larger project? So I had gone back to it when the project prompted me getting like a Marvel Unlimited account. And that kind of gave me the ability to just go through and read a bunch of old comics. It's funny. All I knew about Excalibur before I committed to doing this project, I had one of those, not like Marvel Universe encyclopedias. I feel like I got it like a Scholastic Book Fair and it was just like kind of a review of the teams. And so all I knew about Excalibur was like, ah, yes, the British X-Men. Yeah. Um, and that was it. That was all I knew. And when I started doing the project, I, I started to, you know, if I knew um, I could find stories of queer representation, I wanted to find stories about recovery, you know, which, mm-hmm. which was another identity I wanted to read. And, and I had read through some stuff with Terry in it. And I had, someone had kind of pointed me in the direction of Brian Braddock, which is, it's what got me to start reading Excalibur. It's not why I continued to read Excalibur because I ended up just loving it and it was just fun. And it was a really nice reprieve from, if there was probably, if there was a series that my supervisor would have wanted me to read, it probably <laughs> would have been <laughs> Excalibur because it was just a levity that was missing in other things I was reading. And I, you know, ultimately I feel like Alan Davis was like, nah, I don't really feel like talking about Brian Braddock's alcoholism. It's fine now. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But it was there in the beginning and it got me to pick up the book. So mm-hmm. yeah, we've yeah had feelings about that kind of being dropped because we like broken Brian. He was an interesting mm-hmm. character yep. and sort of erasing some of that brokenness. We've had feelings about it as we've been going along. Mm-hmm. It's going to get worse. It hasn't gotten to the part that really bugs me yet but <laughs> oh don't <laughs> we're not talking about <laughs> we're, 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 fine. we're fine this is this is mildly broken brian it's fine yeah. <laughs> we'll get there mostly a statue just, today. he's gold for the entire issue <laughs> it's, it's, fine. Entire. it's fine it's yeah. you know <laughs> He's not even around today. (laughs) All right, let's get to our issue summary. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd never call you a troll for trying to save our hides. But as always, let's start today's duel with a plot summary. Excalibur 58 opens in the grody sewers under London, where Cerise and the newly arrived Farron are trying to help Megan, who, as you'll recall, got goldfingered by alchemy in the previous issue. Except she's not dead. Don't worry. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Surprising no one, Farron's magic is not up to the task. Elsewhere, Excalibur and the X-Men are recovering from the massive gambit-caused explosion that ended the last issue, but they wake to find themselves bound in mystical change that nullify their powers. Suddenly, a door swings open and the troll associates make their memorable entrance. Wolverine gets free and attacks one of the trolls, but Alchemy transforms his claws into useless rubber. Cyclops tries to reach his radio, but Nightcrawler tattles on him to the trolls. Kurt makes an impassioned speech about how he's always been treated as an outsider because of his elfin appearance, and says he's ready to reject the X-Men to join the trolls. Felix, who can tell 
when characters are telling the truth, agrees that Kurt is. The trolls replace Wolverine's chains and free Kurt. Later, in a huge subterranean meeting place, Fow, the leader of the troll associates, addresses a large crowd, telling them that with Alchemy's powers and Nightcrawler's knowledge of the various mutant team's strategies, their goal of world domination is at hand. The rally is interrupted by the arrival of Cerise and Farron. To prove his loyalty, Kurt takes out Cerise and teleports away with Farron, convincing the trolls he died in the attempt. Despite the slander of Gambit and Jubilee, Kurt's a good boy, so of course, his defection was a clever ruse. He frees the X-Men, then challenges Fow to a duel. Kurt does okay in the fight, but is betrayed by a stray axe, which Cyclops kindly dispatches. A fight ensues in which bad trolls fight mutants and good trolls are protected by mutants, and Alchemy and Kurt save Alchemy's mom. The fight is ended by Alchemy, turning Fow into gold. Alchemy degolds Brian, Megan, and the policeman from the last issue, and celebrations commence, including Cerise hitting Kurt with her favorite Earth custom, the lip massage. Kurt and Scott talk out some feelings, and then they need to make a decision about the trolls, most of whom aren't so bad after all. They decide to leave the bad trolls as gold statues and let the other trolls move to the crazy game wonderland where they can happily and conveniently live out their days in peace okay let's move to some first impressions starting with our honored guest connor how are you feeling about this issue what are your general impressions of this one so my my first thought is that this was the issue for me and and maybe it was the presence of the x-men and like the lee era costumes and just i was just like oh the 90s are here now in a way (laughs) that it hasn't really felt in the series, you know, I more so in, you know, the last issue into this kind of together, but I was just like, Oh, we're, we're doing this thing now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and you know, that Joe Mads art probably also, it was just a lot of things and that's not a bad thing, but it was just kind of, it almost feels like whiplash a little bit after the last several really heavy issues <laughs> yeah. um, that we had had. Yeah, I found myself thinking about that too. We recorded out of order. So when we did the episode on Excalibur 57, we hadn't recorded Excalibur 56 yet. And in light of our conversation in 56, I'm like, did we kind of go easy on 57? Because if you were reading that in sequence, that is quite a lot of whiplash between the mountains of sexual violence um, in 56 to this fun troll romp story in 57. And I found myself thinking about that a lot when I was prepping the notes for, for this issue. Yeah, and there's like weirdly context for that with the trolls because that's this is how they show up in x factor like yes. immediately on the heels of the inferno there's just oh yeah the trolls and we're doing a story about like what that's <laughs> true that's here? true we recorded that order did we talk about where alchemy and the trolls came from on last episode we I did talk bit, about yeah. it a little bit because okay. it was a contest the, it was a contest yeah it was a contest and what's odd is that other story is basically exactly this story like <laughs> like the i mean it, it plays out a little differently but like the major plot beat the the plan of the trolls, what alchemy is doing pretty much exactly the same, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's just I'm like, it's weird to do it twice. And it's only, I think it's a year apart when it gets published. Something like that. It, it, it's, it's a weird choice. Yeah. On Mav's subject of repetition, this is uncanny X-Men 170. This is the story titled Dancing in the Dark, which also mm. predates the Springsteen song, by the way, because I know Claremont, okay. takes, Claremont takes a lot of shit for using song titles. <laughs> anyway, um, in that particular story, this is the one where Aurora's leadership capacity is established, where you have a group of sewer-dwelling people harboring resentment toward the surface mm. dwellers. You have a conflict okay. resolution that comes about through challenging the leader to single combat. You have a theme of the rite of passage towards leadership. You have a theme of body transformation, and you have the theme of moral sacrifice. Let 
like Lobdell is borrowing from two different sources here and not subtly. Oh, I kind of hate that you mentioned that, Andrew, because <laughs> I like I'm kind of a defender of this story arc. I even included it in my Excalibur Primer for Comics XF. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> but when you mention that, I'm just like, oh, in that story, it's got the great thing of Kurt is like, I'm going to fight Callisto. Yeah. I'm going to do the single pot combat thing. And Storm's just like, sit down. I'm doing yeah, this. Yeah, and I'm like, later. oh, I like I like that so much better. <laughs> I don't know that I don't know that it's a bad comparison, though, because, you know, I've, I've made sort of a gimmick on crapping all over Lipdell here. And I, <laughs> <laughs> but like, I don't think this is bad. I mean, as far as his work goes, does he make choices that I wouldn't have made? Sure, whatever. But this is not a bad story. I don't think it's bad to no. have homages to better stories i i mean i think that taking those two things and putting them together does say a lot it, it gives us a placeholder for where the character of kurt is going to be once labdell is the writer of record coming up soon here and that's fine i mean he's 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 staking his claim you have to give him a little he, bit of leeway if he is uh, going to be the author i don't necessarily have to like not, that though he's, he's not yet someone else's claim yeah, but it, but he, yeah, but I mean, it, but he's doing what he's doing. It's sort of like when, um, where Claremont went wrong, and I don't know that I'd say he's wrong because I'm on his side, but where, where Claremont lost things the first time was because, you know, a bunch of new guys came in and they wanted to do their version of the X-Men, which was the version mm -hmm. of the X-Men that he'd done, you know, six years earlier. So he was like, right. why, you know, <laughs> but so I understand that. But I mean, if, if you're going to be saying, here's where I want the story to go, this is not a bad way of doing it characters are heavy-handed but mostly in character you know for his version of them <laughs> you know I, I don't hate this i don't hate this at all i think it's completely reasonable that you know anna you said it was on on your primer and i, I buy that there's worse stories that you can pick i'm of two minds about it just because I actually think it does make sense in conversation with that earlier story if we're going to talk about the Kurt leadership thing and in that earlier mm -hmm. story you know Kurt's like I'm going to be the solo hero and do this thing and that was not his role at that time and he did need mm -hmm. to sit down and so if the thing that we're doing now is that he is up to that role this time that can make sense in context the thing though that when Andrew said it I was just like I would personally prefer if he did try to do that again and one of the big strong ladies told him to sit down again and, <laughs> and did it for him because I would personally actually enjoy that a lot more but that's a very subjective complaint having to do with with my interests so but doesn't it also say that this is i mean hearing what you're saying there there's a storyline progression because yeah. the relationship between kurt and scott is not the same as the relationship between aurora and scott and yeah, yeah. you can and you can mm -hmm. compare that now i find labdell's version of cyclops a little heavy-handed and i said this yeah. before yes, the animated <laughs> yeah. He, yeah. He's, yeah. he's writing he's writing captain america he's not writing scott and he's and scott yeah. is not captain mm -hmm. america um and not but, a good like, captain america right so he but, but that's i mean this is a version of this is a version of scott that calls kurt boy what the hell and is son. that yeah and son and, 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 and i'm like son you're like four years older than him like tops you're like four years older than he is and like it's weird but like i see where he's going with it but i i like being able to make that comparison and even without storm in the comic i think that the comparison is now there because what lubdell gets right is that Scott thinks it's his God given right to lead the X-Men damn it like that is who Scott is and that's who Scott was in the 60s that's who Scott is in 2022 like 
<laughs> like I'm here, I'm the leader of the X-Men, you know, and that's where the questions come into play. That's where a lot of his um his conflicts with with Storm always was, was that she's like, I'm in charge now, Scott. And he he had a hard time dealing with it. Here, the conflict is I'm the leader of the X-Men. And Kurt has to kind of say, dude, this isn't the X-Men. You're in my country here. You know, like that. That's interesting, I think. Well, let's get into that a little bit more because I just I feel Connor just anxious to talk about Cyclops <laughs> yeah, yeah. As, as we're talking about him in his stead. So let me give you a chance to to say your piece about Scott Connor. What draws you to the character of Scott Summers? He is such a fascinating character within the X-Men fandom in as much as people love to hate him as a character, which I actually find kind of baffling because <laughs> yeah, although sure he's do. not yeah. he's not my identification character, I love him as a character. So tell us your bit about Scott. What draws you to him as a character? I think it's there's definitely a like a personal attachment and a being it, you know, like he's just one of those characters like I see myself in and I see mm -hmm. the things I like about myself and a lot of the things that like I'm not the biggest fan of myself reflected in him but just from like a, a literary perspective like I just think he is such an incredible character like in the entire like comics canon I think Scott is probably the one who came the closest to actually getting a happy ending. Yeah. And and not getting that, I think ultimately, I mean, it really bogs down his his character for a while, but I I do honestly think it's the more compelling story to have this kind of arrested development kid who's like really actually kind of scared to grow up and have his happy ending. That makes sense to me looking at it from like a like a human behavior perspective. It's like, yeah, that that tracks. That <laughs> That feels like what this person would do. And it's it's interesting because you were making the comparison of how, you know, Lobdell writes him as Captain America. I don't think that there is a character who screws up as often and as publicly and then is also kind of punished for it as Scott. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I, yeah. And I think it's incredible to have this character who is the X-Man and will forever be, you know, so central to this universe of characters be a be a screw up i love that <laughs> really and i and i love that they let that happen and then the 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 other piece i just think the political ideology of the x-men is something that's had to shift you know like going back and reading old stories you're like okay the brotherhood was they were kind of right they had a few you know like <laughs> the, the mlf like they weren't wrong you know like i <laughs> And so that that kind of more mainstream liberal assimilationist politic has to change for the mm -hmm. X-Men to continue to make sense. And I think Scott has the character arc that tracks the course of that change the best. And, yeah. you know, going from kind of dutiful, you know, child soldier, realistically, but kind of standard bearer of Xavier's dream to know that we have to do something about this. Because I, I think as a mutant, talking about it, you know, within the, the context of of the metaphor, I think Scott is somebody who he has his fair share of trauma, but I don't think a lot of it comes from his status as othered or being marginalized in the way that it does for a lot of other characters who have a more visible mutation or who, you know, intersect with things like Aurora being depowered and what that can mean and, and be allegory for. Scott is kind of separate from that. And so it makes sense that he wouldn't really get the, the radical side of it until he's able to recognize, you know, I just, I, I love that political mm -hmm. arc a lot for him. Yeah, I'm very, I don't 
think I have enough sophisticated thoughts about it, and we'd have to talk about current comics too much, but his relationships with women are definitely one of the things that really interest me about the character and the ways that some of his, well, so much of his radicalization is sort of learned through his relationships with women, and uh, that really interests me about him, but that's sort of a separate conversation. But um, let me ask you a little bit about his portrayal in this particular comic. I mean, how do you feel about the characterization here? And how do you feel about him sort of as a leader? You know, what are, to you, sort of Scott's strategies as sort of like a leader of the X-Men what we can focus on sort of like the Claremont issue sort of bleeding into the issue at hand because obviously if we're going to talk about the modern stuff it changes as you mentioned but that was a terrible question I threw at you I will rephrase (laughs) as I just like went in too many different directions it's been a very long week yeah my question was supposed to be uh, about how you think that he's characterized in this particular issue what are your thoughts about it so I think I mean he's he's so flat in this issue. Scott from from like the end of what is I think X Factor sixty eight is his kind of big soliloquy as he's sending Baby Cable into the future. From the volume two relaunch through a lot of the nineties, I think he just became the Boy Scout in blue and yellow, and that's. Yeah. Like this issue comes on the heels of the cartoon mm-hmm. premiering. And so that's like shading his representation here a lot, I think. And then on the other side of this is, oh my goodness, why can't I think of the name of the story? Executioner's Executioner song. Execution, that's what it is. Thank you for bearing with me. <laughs> is on the other side of this. And that's like kind of his first story of this decade where he is sort of centralized in a way. And so he's just kind of in like a treading water place. And that, I feel like that's how Lobdell writes him. He's just like, he's here telling people what to do. (laughs) I mean, does that jive with you, Andrew, in terms of where the character was at this point in time? You've done such great threads about his character evolution for Claremont Run. Yeah, I I agree with that a lot. I I think for me, this is one of the fundamental problems. And I'm not going to harp too much on this, but I really do think it needed to be Storm who comes uh, and and has the resolution with Kurt. Really? I, Mm -hmm. I don't understand why nightcrawler would need atonement from cyclops like yeah that's okay in their third appearance together nightcrawler basically says fuck off scott i'm gonna do it my way you know what i mean um <laughs> and we've talked so much about in excalibur nightcrawler's growth as a- an emotional leader rather than a tactical leader um and i don't i don't see that here right? this is him being tactical once again yeah uh, so, so to me it feels like a step back for nightcrawler and i think specifically having him mirrored with cyclops rather than storm i think that creates that regression for me personally so i I don't like Mm. it i just my attitude is why do you care kurt so this one bugs me yeah Mm. i mean i'm kind of being talked into it andrew because i mean i'm thinking about (laughs) i know it's just like i get where the story is going with it but what are we really doing with kurt here are we doing like this like remasculinization of kurt where he has to sort of live up to conventional masculine archetypes in order to be an appropriate leader like i thought we were going to be kind of questioning that or like critiquing that and it kind of when I, the more i think about the way this issue interacts with past issues and even in the conflict between kurt and scott which is i don't want to say it's like a dick measuring contest in this issue but it's like not not that and yeah. that is a bit disappointing <laughs> in terms of sort of the complexity that could be present in that relationship relationship i mean there's parts of it that i like that i want to talk about i like that we have like the mascot thing brought up again and i want to talk about that but you guys are putting me in the really unfair position of come to our side no of of having to defend scott labdell i don't like it i'm not comfortable with it it doesn't feel good i feel dirty i need a shower please um every comic is someone's first comic i'm gonna go i'm gonna go all you know gym shooter here right oh oh joy well but here 
I mean, here's the thing. I hear what Andrew's saying, and I think you're right in that it is a more interesting, long-form story to say Kurt probably has more resolved issues with Storm than he does with Cyclops if I am going to read the entire, at this point, 400-some-odd chapter of the X-Men saga from start to finish the way, you know, crazy people like us do. Right. I was gonna say, me and Connor do that all the time. Right. Yep. Right. <laughs> or like if I'm hosting a podcast where I'm gonna sit here and read every issue, you know, like most people aren't that, right? And I think that probably there are far more people who jumped on X-Men this month, literally this yeah. month, because in October a new cartoon premiered that took the that took the world by storm and no pun intended. <laughs> and, and, and and like had it. people yeah, and had people who looked like this on the cover, right? Scott's the leader there. And I mean, should he be? It's complicated, but that's where I think this Boy Scouty thing come comes in. Yeah, and I think totally. this is I think this is very much establishing a status quo of, you know, this is not a, a world with internet. This is not a world with Marvel Unlimited. This is a world where, hey new kids, hey twelve year olds, I'm gonna tell you the story of who Kurt is in this world so that you can start reading it if you're coming here from X Men land. And we'll throw in characters that you love. Look, it's Gambit and Jubilee, people that Kurt does not know, but they're in this story, you know, because yeah. because you might recognize them from, you know, other stuff. Like, that's really what this is. I'm a little easier on it because I'm thinking of it as a jumping off point. I, I agree with you as an overall narrative, probably not the best. And I see I see where you're saying with the regressing towards being tactical rather than emotional. I don't think this is bad. Again, we just read some Liddell stories that are crap that this is not that this is this is fine i mean like it's it's, it's okay like let let joy into your hearts connor <laughs> i'm here to tell you the good it's news not... of scott Liddell. oh god <laughs> okay it's... that hurt i i feel bad i'm sorry I, listeners i'm sorry i did not feel good <laughs> it is a fun issue but I mean, yeah. as I'm hearing you say, yeah. like, you know, this is somebody's first story. It's like, what would I think of Kurt if this was my first exposure to him? <sighs> yeah, I, I uh. <laughs> everybody, everybody can't start with the limited series. Some people have to start here. OK, this is just how the, this is the world we live in. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, can I ask you, Connor, about do you see that there is like or that there might be a meaningful contrast between Scott and Curtis characters? I mean, it's something that interests me and it's come up a few times in X-Men history. I mean, Andrew mentioned the really early one, you know, obviously in Second Coming, they had a conflict about Lethal Force, which I actually found very interesting. And I thought that that was a potentially interesting thing to do with Kurt's defining morality, that one of his lines he won't cross is the X-Men don't kill. And I thought that that was an interesting conflict, which could completely got dropped because Kurt died and then when he came back he was kind of character regressed and completely forgot about that conflict but um and I was also reading kind of wrong I mean the X-Men kind of kill yeah. a lot you know I know, I know. <laughs> Kurt's full of shit because he lets Logan kill people all the time yeah anyway yeah. But that's like <laughs> no I know it's his buddy so it's fine that's his buddy <laughs> <laughs> but but I was also writing this week for Comics like Stuff about Nocturne's Tale, which is like an AU set in the universe of the alternate universe daughter of Scarlet Witch and Nightcrawler. And in that universe, 
like Logan and Kurt are running the school and Scott is kind of heading a new brotherhood because Wolverine got possessed by Shadow King and killed Professor X and like whatever it's silly but there is a central conflict set up in that comic between Kurt and Scott as sort of theoretical leaders of the X-Men and I'm like intrigued by that but even in that comic it kind of can't go anywhere because you have this like internal monologue from Logan that he's like, well, Kurt's just going to try to talk to Scott and this is not going to work. <laughs> like, yeah, it's true. They can't stay angry at anybody. So it like doesn't really go anywhere. And then in that comic too, like Scott just had to be completely out of character to make it work as well. So it intrigued me, but it was not satisfying. But I'll, I'll, again, I'll come back to you with it, Connor. Is there a meaningful contrast between these characters like in the issue at hand or in general? I, I feel like in, in general, when I think about it, I really can't think of so many occasions where they've been like together sharing a plot other than like the yeah. few we've talked about they're really they kind of just keep you know like ships in the night on books with each other in this issue i i feel like my big takeaway was because when i think of scott i i very often think of just like i'm gonna repress this feeling and i'm gonna be okay with it and seeing kurt you know over the last few issues i mean he's he's done that but it's more of like i'm gonna repress this and then i'm gonna joke about it like they they have a very different approach to not dealing with their insecurities. And and mm. I, I started to see a lot more in common with them than I've noticed in the past. I think that the biggest contrast, though, is Scott thinks about... <laughs> I think Scott thinks like a soldier. You know, he was groomed by Xavier to, to be a soldier. And, and by the time Giant Sized relaunched, that wasn't really what... Xavier was doing as much they were they weren't quite child soldiers so I, I think the way that they both think of conflict and think of violence is so separated on that front because Kurt is like I'm a superhero I'm a swashbuckler and like I feel like Cyclops would probably tell you I'm a superhero but you're a soldier you know well I think he's a superhero in that this is where I think it, it's apt I don't like that Lubdell thinks Scott is Captain America. I'm okay, I'm totally okay with Scott aspiring to be Captain America. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people we talked you talked briefly about this uh Connor when you're talking about people like sort of hating on Scott. I think a lot of the hate on Scott is because, you know, he's frankly the boring one. His power is not as flashy, he doesn't kill people, you know, like especially if you're if you join into comics, if you get in in the edgy 90s, he's not that, right? But I think that's what makes him interesting because quite frankly, for most of us, if you're a nerdy kid who just started be, you know, reading comics because you felt like an outsider and, you know, this made you feel okay, Scott's probably who you're going to be, you know? <laughs> like mm -hmm. like you're you're much more likely to be a Scott type than you are to be a Logan type or an Emma type or a Gene type, you know, they might be more fun to imagine yourself as. But Scott's, you know, he he does school, he does what he's told, he does his best, and that's who he is. And I think that partly that just feels boring, but I like the aspiring to. I I, I like the Scott who goes around and says, I'm going to go do this this because this is what heroes do, and I'm gonna be a hero, and I'm gonna be a hero, and ooh, my high school girlfriend's back and I can leave my wife. Oops, wait, I shouldn't have done that. Like that, like like no. But I mean, that's no. who he is, right? He tries and he tries and then he screws up. That's Scott. And it makes more sense to see him as flawed in that respect, even though he's trying to not be. I really like Cyclops when he's a study in um, sort of taking care of yourself and what you're entitled to as an individual. 
in life in conflict with your duties and responsibilities mm-hmm. and that's my yeah. complaint with this scott he does not have that conflict no he he's is just perfect the here. leader of the x-men that's who he is he doesn't need to take a break he doesn't need a nap he doesn't need any kind of love or emotion in his life he can just we excuse it because it's not scott this is this is jester's telling of the story so maybe he's that's, just that's a good way wrong. to do it maybe he's just wrong you know it's like this is what i heard and he does say this is what megan told me and she was fully a statue for all of this Most of the story <laughs> oh, wow. yeah. good point yeah i mean i can buy that jester's kind of a nightcrawler fanboy and maybe is massaging the story in yeah. that direction but um, if i want to do a, a headcanon reading of it i mean the thing that i like about scott that i do find very identifiable with him and that i think is what interests me about the potential conflict between him and kurt is just Scott has a different obligation as sort of this character who has been, as Connor said, you know, groomed to be the leader of the X-Men that, you know, Kurt just doesn't have. Kurt doesn't have that obligation of leadership in the same way. I mean, he's been forced into positions of leadership, you know, throughout his career in the X-Men franchise. But I think about that dynamic in the early issues of Uncanny, where, you know, Scott's just trying to get them to do stuff, and they actually do have to do stuff and work as a team, and Scott's not wrong. And I think about sort of Kurt and Logan sitting at the back of the class, just making jokes and making fun of him, because they don't have the (laughs) obligation to do that. They get away with kind of being that because they don't have that same sense of duty and obligation. And I really feel for Scott, because I think I brought this up as a thing about leadership on a previous episode but I I really think about like that difference between you know being a teacher's assistant or even being a student where you can kind of have that outsider identity but then when you become the professor or the lecturer you take on a different kind of responsibility and people react to you differently Mm. because god I can't even tell you how difficult it was for me as I was always a really good student, but I was definitely the student who sat in the back of the class and like didn't look up and never talked and considered myself a really cool outsider. And when I had to be like even a TA for the first time and like I had to be like, okay, let's engage in conversation. Let's do, I had such an identity crisis. Like I was just like, oh God, I can't do this. It's not me. I don't want to talk. I don't want to do this. And then I think about Scott and I'm like, he has that obligation and I feel for him because that is hard. It is hard to be the person who has to make the decisions who like has to order people around because you need somebody to do that so it's like for me i have like the emotional like i want to be the kurt character but i also know scott's the more realistic character (laughs) right well that's what i'm getting at like he's he grew up here right like yeah you you talked about you know kurt and logan sitting in the back of the classroom except for they're in the back of the classroom and they started when they were grown-ups right yeah yeah you know like like scott has been in this world since Xavier found him when he's like 13, 14 years old and is like, I'm going to raise you to be my child soldier. That's who, that's who he is. Right. And now he's a grown man and this is the world he's grown up in. And, you know, you you compared him to like learning to be a TA. I'm thinking back when I I first started teaching, I had one class where I, you know, I, I had a group project and it was very clear to me that there was one girl in one group who had pretty much done all the work and just assigned the roles because she looked around and she saw her classmates and she decided by her, I didn't tell her this, but she clearly must've decided I'm better than all of you. I'm going to do all the work. I am not risking my grade on you nincompoops, right? Like and that's, and I think that's who Scott is. Scott's trying his best. You said, you know, he's like, you know, we've got to learn to be a team. Yeah, he's right. He's, he's somebody who's trying at least in the x-men days in the um, all new all different days he's somebody who's trying to you know make everybody play right and you know don't be the class clown in the back of the room 
because he does want to get a good grade. He wants things to work out. Scott's rarely wrong from a leadership point of view. I mean, he makes mistakes because he's human. Like, I mean, I made the joke about, you know, leaving his wife and child to hook up with his ex-girlfriend. But I mean, that's a reasonable thing that might happen, right? Like, it's a thing that certainly does. I mean, not re not reasonable and good. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. thing. It's a reasonable yeah. thing. It's, it's, it's a very human thing. It's a thing that people do, particularly in the case where it's not even like just ex-girlfriend. It's your ex-girlfriend who died suddenly. You know, like I, I, I get where he's coming from with every decision that Scott makes. We're very frequently hard on Brian on this show because Brian shows up more often, right? But if you think about it, we always say Brian's decisions, horrific than they may be, make perfect sense when you, you know, early on realize he's a man who just watched his sister die on television, right? Like everything. Yeah. And and if you put everything about Brian through that lens, you sort of get it and you you can't excuse it, but you get it. And I think that you can do that with Scott in a different sort of way. You know, this is a man who has been treated like he was supposed to be the next messiah for his people since he was 14 years old yeah but that's not the way for me that cyclops character played out in more recent continuity mm -hmm. right? like again the way claremont built him up it, it's all about his discovery of his humanity so to have him very suddenly not have any humanity to be desold the way that he is in this comic yeah i find that bad. really problematic yeah this is this and that's why i said this is Jester telling his version of it because yeah, this is nice... this is somebody writing Captain America and poorly, by the way, because I'm <laughs> reading Captain America at this point. And what's always great about Captain America, you know, I mean, I guess he's more popular now because of the films, right? When Captain America is written correctly, Captain America is a man who has the weight of the world on his shoulders, but he's just yeah. human and he's trying to hide it from everybody. But everybody treats Captain America like he's perfect. And that's not there either. Cyclops is just this perfect leader in this book because that's how Lobdell sees him. And, and I get that the characterization of Scott in this book is not terribly deep, I don't think, in this particular book. Let's get at the contrast a little bit more by talking about the callback to the mascot thing, because we have that a couple mm -hmm. of times in this book, you know, Kurt mm -hmm. mentioning it um, in front of everybody. And then that's what he and Scott had a little conversation about at the end of the issue. And I'll give it to you first, Connor. I mean, we talked about the mascot thing extensively in our episode where it first came up. So it comes up in, oh, I should know. It comes up in Nightcrawler's TechNet, right? In Excalibur 45, where Kurt has this moment of introspection where he's like, oh, Oh, back in the X-Men days, I was the happy-go-lucky one, almost like I was a mascot. Oh my god, is that how the other X-Men saw me? And then he gets out of it in a hurry because, you know, that's Nightcrawler. Let's not have dark thoughts for like more than a moment, right? Unless he's <laughs> yeah. in one of his melancholy periods. But still, even when he's in a melancholy period, like Arcade usually shows up and he gets to go and save a princess and <laughs> ignore everything. That's Nightcrawler. So um, yeah, did you find this callback to it meaningful, Connor? Like, was this a way that we could get at something interesting in this conflict between these characters? I think so. I, I kind of worry about it becoming almost a little too played out. It, it feels kind of like rehash, but I think the point then and now is that he did not resolve it in 44 or 45, whatever issue that is. Mm -hmm. um, and even here with his conversation with Scott, I mean, he, he goes out of his way to like, oh, I suppose time has a way of recoloring our... Like, but doesn't nothing is really resolved there. I have to wonder if he would be coming from that place, if these things would be kicked up, if not for being kind of re-traumatized by Gambit and by Jubilee, who have mm -hmm. really are hearkening back to like Kitty being terrified of him. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. they are the two X-Men that like the idea of like earning 
their acceptance, which isn't something he should have to do, but it it's definitely seems to be how they're approaching him because they don't act this way with Kitty and they don't act this way with Cerise or Farron. <laughs> they don't really interact <laughs> with him much, but like, you know, like it's only present with Kurt and they're kind of mean to him before he has his like pretend heel turn where he, he sort of yeah. like riff raps, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like what you're bringing to it with that callback because I mean, it is one of those things where I really feel for Kurt in this issue. And I mean, it's almost like dumping on the melodrama with bringing that up again, because that hasn't been something he's dealt with kind of recently, but it is, he has that history of like having to earn Kitty's, you know, just not running away from him when he's around, just not giving him funny looks when he's around. He had to earn that with the new mutants as well. And the pain of having to always earn that respect from fellow mutants. That's a lot. That's a lot to carry with you. And you can see how that feeds into that mascot thing. And when we talked about him sort of as potentially a metaphorical model minority character, when we talked about the X-Men thing before, and that sort of fits into that idea, right, of having to earn everybody's respect and be everybody's best friend and the pressure that you can feel in those kinds of situations. But um, the thing that I liked about how it was handled here, and maybe this is me praising Scott Lobdell as well. I mean, it's co-written by Davis. <laughs> I'm kind of I'm kind of assuming Davis kind of did the plot and Lobdell kind of did the writing yeah this is Lobdell writing this is not Davis writing yeah that's what I sort of assumed but um the point where he does mention it it's interesting right because he's doing the villain performance and then he brings that up in the context Mm. of the villain performance oh like the x-men treated me as a mascot I've got no loyalty to them but that's like a get out of jail free card because did he really mean that or was it a performance and it's further muddied because the phoenix character is like no he is telling the truth emotionally and so you do have that brought up that he is really feeling like that even though it's a performance so i sort of like the way it walks that tightrope and then at the end you know kurt being like well it can color our expectations or whatever i mean the way that that's drawn with his like shaded out face and everything it's not really resolved right and i sort of like that it's not really Mm -hmm. resolved because i would love Mm -hmm. if that is something that sort of kurt has to continue dealing with like i do find it a meaningful contrast when i think back to those uncanny issues where kurt and scott did work together and i was thinking in particular of like the moment from uh it's the first issue that introduces dazzler from dark phoenix saga and gene and scott are like going into the club to like investigate dazzler and it's like kurt you stay in the car and stay out of sight you know <laughs> and like, yeah. that's the issue too where kurt's like i'm not going to use the image inducer anymore so there's a practicalness to that he can't come in because he has no way to disguise himself because he decided he's not going to disguise himself anymore but you really get this sense of like he is a second class citizen he can't be the face of the x-men professor x himself is telling him he needs to hide for the good of the x-men and that's a lot that's like a lot that goes into this character and his backstory and definitely it's something that i wish was more present in in some modern comics not that i want to see that rehearsed again you know like in something like x-men gold where he's like getting beaten up by yet another angry mob i don't want that but just like (laughs) that interesting perspective as a character who has struggled to be accepted by his own people, I think is an interesting way that you can go with that character. And I do like that we're at least having the potential of that here. It's not like it's the greatest story in the world, but I did like the callback to it. I like that we're not just leaving that moment, that it is something he's sort of working through again. And I mean, I'm bringing a lot to it to make the conflict between Kurt and Scott work because I agree it wasn't substantially there in the older comics, but there are certain moments that I can kind of think about and massage this to make it work for me a little bit. I mean, and I mean, if Scott is the standard bearer of Xavier, I mean, it would make sense that he would project some of that insecurity. I mean, Xavier sure rescued him, but then promptly was like, and now you don't get to look like yourself, you know, which to nobody else he does. 
uh, mm-hmm. this. And, and so I think for some of that to be brought back up makes sense. The biggest thing I, I think about, you know, bringing it back to, to in Uncanny and, and the issue with the Morlocks, I found when I first picked up this issue without, I picked up 58 before I picked up 57, I had like kind of jumped ahead. I was like, oh, these are, oh, are we doing the London Morlocks before I was, oh, we're doing oh, the trolls. Yeah. I mean, these are the the antagonists to kind of couch that discussion in, you know, mm-hmm. for him to reflect off of himself against these other very visibly othered, you know, they, they make a point in the X Factor series to say, everybody thinks we're mutants. Everybody thinks we're mutants. Yeah, see, that's like another case where it's like, it, it's like this issue doesn't hold up as well, because I mean, the trolls are these fant- fantasy beings, and it's just not as powerful as a metaphor as the Morlocks, which are so much more interesting, right? So I feel like it's, mm-hmm. it's losing in that comparison. And uh, <laughs> a similar thing happens in this issue, where like, Kurt has that horrible thing in that Morlocks issue, where he's just like, I fight to be judged by my actions, not my appearance. And that's why I'm doing diversity correctly. It's like, oh, boy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's not great. It's not great. I mean, talk about that like uh, liberal assimilationist thing that we mentioned before. And he kind of does a similar thing here, where he's just like, "You're painting all the humans with the same brush, but we should have inclusion." And I'm like, "Yeah, okay. I get that you're trying to make this about something, but it's not great. It's not great. Just do the fun troll fight. I don't need this little speech." Yeah. yeah. Because it's funny that we didn't even talk about we didn't even talk about like that like metaphor like it's, it's supposed to be like a story about inclusion and it's like ugh. building on what you were saying earlier I, I do think that that mascot element that was very much an unresolved trauma that Kerr has carried with him since yeah, the yeah. massacre so it makes sense that when he encounters the X Men that would be something that gets brought to light I don't think Kurt ever felt like a mascot in Excalibur from like the second he threw Brian in the ocean he was clearly. <laughs> not being treated that way yeah. right so it, it's a way for him to assert to not just scott but to the x-men and by extension the readers that this is who he is now to sort of channel all of that character arc and growth that we've seen over the course of the excalibur franchise um into maybe a bit of a statement if you're going to tell that story it's that's a reason why you need this to be scott and not aurora because storm wouldn't treat him that way mm-hmm. like yeah, just, it, it would be very weird for kurt to be having a discussion with storm i'm not your mascot and she'd be like yeah who said you were what are you talking about like it, it would it, where is this coming it, it from scan as well. yeah it, it wouldn't scan as well he, he wouldn't feel they're friendly in a way that he wasn't with scott i think he needs yeah yeah the distance there in order for that to work yeah i think the mascot thing for as much as scott has to be written as kind of out of character and unsympathetic to make it work i totally agree with that but it does work better with scott because of the tie to xavier i think the conflict between storm and kurt would be more like hey you told us you were dead and i'm pretty upset about that because they never really (laughs) reckoned with that um let's move to some final thoughts stuff from this issue that we want to highlight that we didn't get a chance because there's lots of little moments in here that we didn't kind of focus on and we did talk a lot about the art last issue but i mean certainly we can talk about it again in this one if there were particular things that we liked um i'll let you have the last word connor but mav i'll come to you for for your final thought anything you want to touch on two um one's just because I, I i was you know cheering libdell but i don't actually like him so <laughs> so I, I did a little bit of research just because we were talking offline about his little moment at the very begin where where he has jubilee offer this little diss towards 90210 um, (laughs) which is weird and the only way i can logic this out is that scott labdell is an old man trying to sound hip um i say that as an old man myself now you know but he has her say 
Me, I couldn't be having less fun watching 90210 as though Jubilee is way too cool to be watching 90210. Except that Jubilee is a 14-year-old girl in 1992. She would exactly be watching 90210. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was a little older. But as someone who was, you know, a cognizant adult who was, you know, just really starting to get... I was in college at that point, And I was really starting to get into this whole, you can study pop culture for a living. That's a thing. Like, that was when I was, like, like really getting into it. But also, in college, it was a super popular show and it was the kind of thing that you know i would get together with my friends and we would get drunk and watch 90210 um we would also <laughs> watch friends in the same way and she would have been aware of that and so i went yeah. and pulled the numbers so for the 1992 to 93 season when this was on 90210 was the number 60 show on television which is not great, but it's not bad. But you have to understand that this is a world where Fox is a fledgling, very clear number four network. It was in far fewer households. If you're in America today and you look at the ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, and CW, it was in the space of the CW. It just was not popular the same way. So 90210 was the 60th highest rated show on television, but it was the fifth highest show on Fox for the 92 to 93 season. And by the 94, uh, by the 93, 94 season, it was up to number two. It was super popular. And the reason was at this time, we don't have streaming world yet. We don't have, you know, Netflix and Hulu and HBO Max and all that stuff. So if you're going to have a show on television, on network television, you are trying to be what's called a four quadrant show. You're trying to appeal to men and women who are old and young. And by young and by men and women who are young, I mean children, not so much teenagers, because teenagers don't matter. Teenagers leave the house and go out <laughs> on dates and stuff. They, so so they were an abandoned market segment. Like so you ended up with all these family shows. You ended up with, you know, Family Ties, Cosby Show, Married with Children. You, you ended up with these shows that were supposed to be for adults. The top shows on the air right now, Cosby would have been popular. Full House was running at this time. Family Matters, Step by Step. This is the kinds of stuff that's, that's on the air. And Fox has this idea of what if we don't do that? What if we put shows on the air that appeal to young people and minorities? So Fox has In Living Color and Martin shows for black people. And then they have these young people shows, 90210 and Melrose Place and kind of Married with Children, which is basically making fun of all these other sitcoms. And that's where they built their market. They also get The Simpsons at this time. And so it was actually super, super popular. And probably it would have been edgier for her as a counterculture kid that she's supposed to be to actually be super into 90210 at the time. I don't think he understands it. I think that he saw this as a corny show the way, you know, it was like, oh, if this would be like, oh, you know, you're watching Euphoria. How lame. No, Euphoria is like <laughs> the show that all the kids are watching right now. Right. It wouldn't have been lame to her. That, so that stuck out as like sort of aging poorly to me. This is an impressive mm. amount of research to <laughs> prove something we already know, which is yeah. that Scott Lobdell makes very bad out of character <laughs> jokes. Well, and and, that, and the thing is, like, I guess, like, for you know, my other love, I'm super into TV in the same way that I am to yeah. into comics. Yeah. It's, it's pop culture, so like, this is stuff that wasn't like hard for me to find. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll just pull the numbers. I have <laughs> like, I no, read I Nielsen reports regularly because I'm because I'm that kind of weirdo. My other thing is, we're just gonna be okay with Alchemy deciding to imprison some trolls for eternity. Yes. 
I know. <laughs> that was um, it was just like, oh yeah, okay. If you're a good troll, you get to live in you know, in Utopia with um the crazy gang, but you other ones, we don't want to deal with jails, so I'm just going to leave them in this eternal nightmare of being torn turned into gold. Everybody cool with that? Yeah, okay, good. Bye. <laughs> that I was know. A, that was a choice. Yes, that stood out to me as well. I was going to mention that as well. I'm like, are they conscious in there? I mean, what's going on? It's a horrifying choice. Or that... did he just straight up murder them? Is it? Is it? Are they I conscious know. or are they dead? Either one's not great. Like you just spent the entire issue being worried about how do we save Brian and Megan from this fate worse than death? But it's okay because you know you're bad people. So it's it's pointless to complain about Alchemy's powers since we're not going to like see him again. But if you can just turn everybody into gold by touching them, and you can do that indefinitely. Wouldn't he be like the most powerful person in the world? I mean, it just, why is it even a fight? Couldn't he just like touch everyone? He's shown up like, I think twice since then, like literally yeah, in comics. I know. In, in the last 30 years, I think he's had four appearances and I believe he's he, currently he dead. He one of them. Yeah, he's yeah, he yeah. fighting a dead, except for, yeah. except for Krakoa. So he should be alive like all the other minutes. Who knows? It doesn't, <laughs> whatever. No one cares about alchemy. But just, I feel like he needed some sort of like Silver Age gimmick limit on his powers. Like he can only affect people under certain conditions or something you know like green lantern's mm -hmm. yellow thing he needed that molecule anyway. man can't affect organic matter which is yeah, matter. yeah. what are you talking about <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> anyway andrew did you have a final thought for us uh yeah mine's not really gonna go anywhere um i just wanted to connect to an earlier episode of the pod we did um two episodes ago i think it was um where we talked about the violence uh in an issue of excalibur and particularly how it was connected to misogyny and mav brought up the wonderful point about how this is the currency of comics violence and thus women need to be able to participate in that there's a scene in this comic where kurt punches cerise in the yeah, face and yeah. draws blood mm -hmm. i just thought that was a really interesting scene to view through the lens of our earlier discussion and i've got nothing for it you know what i mean like i didn't get anywhere but i keep thinking about it and what that kind of means for representation purposes under cca rules that's actually real edgy for 1992 the fact that she mm -hmm. gets away with it is it we're i mean we're coming to revisiting what the cca is and then we're coming to the last gas cca comics code authority for people who don't know uh the last gas to where it turns out marvel starts realizing marvel and dc start realizing we can just not pay attention what's anybody going to do and they mostly got away with it but they were still trying at that point and that is kind of to have kurt punch a punch a lady would have been super um whoa whoa is it does that really happen it would have seemed like a super heel turn kind of moment yeah i i feel very similarly andrew because it's definitely like oh whoa and i think we even talked about this on the pod before that i can think of very few instances like maybe two in which kurt has like been violent with a woman like even a villain woman like in comics ever because it's kind of a thing for that character but I, I was of two minds about this one because when I compare it to like the violence that bothered me so much in Excalibur 55 and 56, it was the excess of that violence. And this image is a lot less excessive, even though you have the technical detail of the blood, it's a very bloodless image. Like if that makes sense, like mm -hmm. it just wasn't excessive the same way that like Jamie Braddock twisting and choking yeah. Psylocke mm -hmm. and she's like choking on her own spit. Like that's just a lot more. So maybe I'm just like reacting to the comparison with that which you know whatever those issues were a lot but yeah i know what you mean andrew i just i had i didn't feel good about it but i also wasn't like upset about it the way i was upset about some of the violence in 55 and 56 I mean, one of the emotions that kind of led me in the opposite direction was uh, I like the idea that Ceres is a soldier uh, and that she gets to participate in violence. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, in a way that she's not presented as precious or, or anything like that. Um, but yeah, on the other hand, Scott Lobdell wrote this and <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah, everything just kind of flares in different directions for me. And mm-hmm. and that he ultimately rewards Kurt yeah. with a kiss uh, from her. Yep. That was going to be my final thought. Real weird. (laughs) That's the reciprocity. Yeah, that was going to be my final thought because, like, I know Matt was surprised that I didn't really have issues with the kiss in 55, and I do have issues with the kiss here. Hmm, Okay. (laughs) So, like, I have issues with it in that it forgives him for that violence and absolves him. And, you know, he was performing a role and whatever. I get it. I get why we're supposed to absolve him. But there's also a thing here where it made me uncomfortable in terms of like, I get that superhero teams aren't military, they're not jobs, but he is the leader of the team. And there's just this feeling I get where she gives him the big kiss and like Scott's watching and I'm just sort of like, is this how your team works? Like the people who are your subordinates (laughs) have to reward you with kisses at the end of the mission because it makes me feel weird and I don't love it and... I don't know. Just like, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, Riker on TNG is a fun, sexy character, but isn't everybody he's working for someone that he writes performance reviews of? (laughs) So like, isn't that sort of weird? And like, once you realize that it makes you feel really weird about all of it. Like, oh, I'm hitting on this young lieutenant. I know, but isn't this the military? Sort of? Yeah. It's the workplace. I mean, that's the that's the workplace narrative problem, right? If any television series, especially te- it happens in TV series because of the nature of how you have to cast physical people as opposed to a comic where you can just draw a new person, uh, a television series, you have to have, you know, actors who are have contracts. The nature of having a workplace romance just has to be forgiven or you can't have romances. And this goes whether you're doing something that's military like Star Trek or you're doing something like The Office, um, like literally human resources should be on everyone's ass in the in the office like realistically none of this is okay nothing that ever happens in that in that room is okay and everyone should be fired and sued um but like you have to like sort of let it go or you can't do a romantic subplot because the power dynamics are just going to be part of the nature of their positioning. Yeah, I think it's just the combination of factors here made it icky. It was the fact that he just punched her. He just and then, punched her, yeah. Yeah, and then <laughs> yeah. she gives him the big kiss, and like she still has problems with not having a lot of personalities, so it kind of feels like giving herself to him as a prize, even though she's taking agency and seizing him, and, you know, I should like that in theory, but... Has she I like had any dialogue? Yeah. I don't think she has. <laughs> she, she, he, he knocked her out, right? He knocked her out, and I don't think she talks again until she can yeah yeah i don't think so but on the other hand it is funny in the sense that we're talking about this like leadership contrast between kurt and scott and you're like oh this is how your team runs huh kurt (laughs) (laughs) okay i mean i want to find that funny but i find it kind of icky so i'm trying i'm trying scott slept with lots of his subordinates yeah this this is true too all all of whom are psychic so Connor, do you have a last word about this issue? Final thoughts that you that you want to get into the podcast before we leave this issue behind? Yes, Joe Mad art overall. Um, there are times where it it doesn't work for me, and we're doing that very like '90s hypersexualized kind of beyond like reality where. I feel like Davis is like more gorgeous and kind of this lush drawing. But then there are times where it like sings for me. Um, Specifically, I mean, the way Kurt is drawn and inked around the time of his, I mean, he looks scary 
in a way where, I mean, I know you guys have spoken a lot about objectifying Kurt. And so to have him be this object of horror as opposed to appeal and fascination, especially compared to all of these other characters, he's just drawn so much more viciously than I'm used to seeing him. And I think that worked here. Yes, I like um, it. I mean, I feel like you're being nervous about it because you're like worried that I won't like it or something. But we <laughs> talked about it in the last issue. I actually okay, really, okay. really like Kurt a lot because like actually like bringing out the monstrous qualities of him is like important because that's part of the character and Davis sometimes draws him too handsome for me. So I actually really like it too. It, yeah, I really, it worked for And then just the requisite, we had joked about it on Twitter, but Joe Mad chains several question marks. <laughs> yes. I just... Um, I, I really love, you know, coming from a place where I'm talking about Claremont all the time, coming into an issue that just opens with some light bondage felt like home. And so <laughs> I was glad I opened, I was like, oh, good. Where I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be that there's a lot in that panel. There's just, oh, there's a lot <laughs> happening. If it's Claremont, there should be hands coming out of the ground. It's, I, it's just it's absolutely necessary. <laughs> I'm just so confused about where Kitty is. Yes, What's it's happening? the kitty. <laughs> There's a lot of questions about the poses. Like I tweeted it out, and yeah, the most of the questions were about Kitty, but it's also just like people are posed weird. Like Beast is on his chest with his like feet in the air, but his feet aren't tied that way. He's just doing that on his own. There's just a lot of weird stuff going on. It like someone pointed out like it on Twitter that like it feels a little bit like he drew some of the characters and then was told he had to add two more and that's kind of how the some of the weirdness happened and I'm like that seems very credible to me as someone who can't draw that's what I would do <laughs> not, not have enough space for all the characters and I'm not saying that Joe Mad can't draw he can but this is very early in his career and it's credible to me that you would when you're doing a complicated layout like that with so many characters and so much stuff going on, that is kind of a rookie mistake to not plan out the space correctly. Um, did you have another final thought for us, Connor? Did we derail you about chains? I, I was a little... Der no, I think my final thought was just chains question marks. Um, <laughs> I, the other... I get, Okay, so my final, final thought. I do appreciate, you know, in the original kind of X-Factor plot with Alchemy, he's like, oh no, X-Factor, I'm going to go to college so that I can learn how to make <laughs> gold people human again. And I like I like the continuity that like, he went to school. I, he's specific that he took yeah. one university course, yes. not a degree, one class, <laughs> but I like the continuity. I like the superheroiness of it too, of like, I had to go to university so that I could learn how to transmute people from gold back into people. That's what university is for, right? Yeah, yeah. I surveyed a human microbiology class. Right, yeah. like, hmm. Bio, 101, Bio 101, how do you turn golden to human? Like, sure. That was, the, that was a weird thing. I love it. I love it. Staying. There's a meeting of the round table. No, I can't. So I think we will wrap things up there. Other than to say, Connor, thank you so dearly for joining us. Before we go, we've got to remind our lovely listeners of your exciting exploits. So let us do that now. <laughs> Assuming you would like people to find you online, and I think that you do, where can they find you? And what stuff of yours should they be checking out? 
you can find me on Twitter at Connor Reads X-Men. It's very straightforward, kind of tells you what goes on there. Um, I'm currently in the process of talking about X-Factor, but unfortunately, by the time this episode comes out, I might be talking about Bird Brain New Mutants, so sorry. Oh, not unfortunately, no, 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 no. Sorry no, no, if no, that's no, when no. you arrive. <laughs> no, no, I disagree. Absolutely great, absolutely great stories. I, I will die on this hill. There, there, good stuff happens in that arc. So please guys come to my account. Yeah. See Mav really excited about bird brain. <laughs> yeah. I will be there with middling brain. indifference. Um, I'm not saying bird brain's good. I'm saying that lots of good stuff happens in that arc. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I have, uh, I've talked um, on some other episodes of, of other shows. Um, I had, I've talked about trauma in, the context of Inferno. If you don't want to hear me talk about X-Men, but you're like super into the idea of, you know, dismantling the carceral state, I've written some stuff with the Center for Court Innovation uh, that you can read, but otherwise just pop by Twitter. I love uh, talking to people about the X-Men. And we'll put some links to your work and site and handle and stuff in our show notes to make them easy to find for people. Thank you so, so much thank again. Thank you. Yes. Thank you guys for having me. This was really fun. Next, in one week's time, we will be discussing Excalibur 59, Enter the Panther, in which we take a trip to Wakanda for the start of a two-part arc. Can't promise it's a top-notch story, but we do have some great guests lined up to talk about Chala, so you can at least look forward to that. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest or a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another legendary conversation. Thank you, Connor, for helping us keep the trolls at bay. Thank you all for listening. And a special thanks to Maximilian of Thought Forum Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. I'm glad we talked about the chains. I was worried there. We didn't get to it. <laughs>